I've always loved watches. I love everything about them. They're little mechanical marvels you wear on your wrist. They're works of art. But there's so much more. The watch world is a wild west. Over the past decade, thanks to websites like Houdinki and others, the enthusiasm for watches is bigger than ever. Everyone is becoming an expert, or at least thinks they are. My next guest, however, is the real deal. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Eric Wind of Wind Vintage. Eric and I talk about how he became the senior watch specialist for Christie's Auction House, moved to start his own company, and why he believes the industry should be more open and what he's doing about it. Mr. Eric Wind, you're on the pod. How you doing? Thank you. Good. It's great to be on here. It's really awesome i'm a huge fan of blamo dude thank you um so i first kind of came you know started to figure out who you were through some of the stuff you were writing for hadinki many many moons ago yeah but like as i've you know tried to do my own sort of digging and serial research like you have just like a laundry list of accomplishments and achievements and it's it's funny because you know we'll talk about this a little bit the whole watch world, specifically the vintage watch world, I think there's what, like eight or nine people or something? I don't know. Maybe in your head you're like, actually, there's way more. But like of the people that I think are out there, um, yeah. you are probably like one of the top dudes. Thank you. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of people in the background, yeah. um, but not a lot of people that are sort of public personalities, I would say. Yeah, uh, and you're, you're the guy. Well, thank you. Yes. One of a few, but it's very nice. So we were talking a little bit on the elevator before we got in here. You're originally from Wisconsin? Uh, yeah, a small town called Manitowoc, made famous by the Netflix documentary series Making a Murderer. Um, I knew some of the people involved and uh, you watched. I mean, it's it's sort of mind-blowing being from a small town and sitting there and watching this and being like, I remember this. And this is it, it was a mind-blowing experience. Um, but a small town, not far from Green Bay, grew up a big Packers fan. Right. And uh, my parents are still there. Yeah. What did you, did you have any siblings? What was that? Yeah, I have an older sister. She lives in California now. Oh. Uh, about five years older than me. Nice. So you, I mean, obviously, I don't know many people that, that like go to school and become watch people, which is not what you did. But yeah. I mean, you, you kind of had like a pretty like long and winding road to get to where you got. Yeah. What, I, what did you originally go to school for? Uh, international politics at Georgetown in D.C. Yeah, so that I, makes sense. I was really, <laughs> I was really <laughs> planning on a political career and things like that, working in, you know, the the State Department or something else. But uh, I I never w- ever would have anticipated working in watches full time. Well, wait, what attracted you to politics? Uh, I've just always been interested in public service and interested in international affairs, what's happening in the world. So yeah. there is, you know, definitely some of that in watches because different global events affect people and clients and you can talk to people about politics and, you know, it's not just watches. You really, I try to treat people that I work with and whether it's other dealers or clients as, as, uh, as friends. Right. Well, but still, I, I think, you know, I, I won't dig too deep, but I think the idea of wanting to be a public servant is not that inherent to many people. Yeah, I um, I guess I always grew up with sort of strong Christian faith, and I, I'm still actually interested in working in politics in the future. Really? Uh, maybe life after watches. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. And history and everything that's happening, current events as well. Yeah. Did your did your folks kind of encourage you with that? Or were you just kind of... They never encouraged it, but we would talk a lot, I guess, around the dinner table about what's happening in the world. And I always found it interesting, really loved history in school. Uh, right. So that shaped my interest. So you, you have a bit of an overlap with our mutual friend, Mr. Jack. Yes. Mr. Yeah. Rowing Blazers, yeah. Jack Carlson. Yeah, absolutely. We went... To Georgetown, we were both School of Foreign Service, which is where Bill Clinton studied, and many uh, diplomats, many heads of state around the world studied there. Um, and we lived on the same floor freshman year. Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of crazy people on our floor, I would say. <laughs> so we were kind of, kind of like 
you're sane, <laughs> grabbing each other by the shoulders. You're you're normal, right? <laughs> you know, so it was. Uh, we became good friends after that. And then, then you jumped over to Oxford to continue what international affairs. I did a uh, master of business administration there, and okay. uh, I realized that my studies at Georgetown just focused on politics and foreign affairs and things like that. But I didn't have any practical business experience. And I was working for a consulting firm in the interim. Uh, we had a re- number of really interesting clients. Um, Angelina Jolie was one. We helped her with her sort of engagement with the UN and US State Department uh, and her f- philanthropic endeavors, Brad Pitt, etc. Um, and I realized that when they Part of what we did was business-related things, uh, right. investments, et cetera, that I didn't know anything, basically, about that world. Um, so I was really interested in learning more about business because I, it's important whether you're in p- politics or whether you're working in business to know the right. details of these fundamental principles. Do you always go to the like the top of the top to, to get your learn on? <laughs> I guess. I, I'm hoping that I'm done with school for a while. Right. But, but uh, I did really enjoy the experience. And my wife and I got married um, in 2012. And then about a month later, went uh, to Oxford and moved there together. So it was kind of, it was a really fun experience to do together as well. Oh, wait, did she go too? She didn't study, but she... She joined, and we went over and moved to England. Oh, lived that's there. Sick. Yeah, it was fun, and it was neat because I guess the average age was a, a was about twenty eight, twenty nine years old, and a lot of people that had just been married or with girlfriends, right. boyfriends, right. partners. So it was kind of a, it was a really nice social scene as well. In addition to the academics, that's sick. So we made some friends that we have around the world. Oh, there you which go. It's nice. Yeah. So. When do watches come into play? All during that time when I, right actually before my senior year in college, I inherited my grandfather's Hamilton, which was a gift from my grandmother to my grandfather for their wedding in 1947. Whoa. He wore that watch. It's a 30 millimeter small gold filled watch. He wore it every day his whole life, except when it was being serviced. Uh, My mom knew I was sort of interested in watches and like heirlooms. So she had it serviced and then gave it to me for my birthday. Um, and I just thought it was so cool. I was wearing it and enjoying it. Like here I am wearing like a little 30 millimeter. I was wearing a 30 millimeter gold filled watch basically most of my senior year, but I loved it. And, uh, during that summer, Hodinkee started, um, and I came across, the site through, I think, menstyle.com or something. It was like an offshoot of GQ at the yeah. time. Yes, yeah, so this and was very early days. Yeah, Menstyle is, is no more. Yeah. So they had Ben do a slideshow. This was, I think, one month into the existence of Hodinkee. Okay. Of 10 desirable vintage watches. Meanwhile, Ben was just learning about this stuff at the time, too, and didn't know much. He was yeah. just learning. We were all learning as we went and still are but he he had that paul newman daytona in there i think there was a james bond submariner those are like the two that i remember um and i had never heard of those things before i mean i obviously knew the submariner the daytona but never seen a paul newman or heard such a thing and thought it was so cool um and then I signed up for the Hodinkee email and was reading it sort of every day uh, as just part of my daily routine and learning about watches. Fast forward to 2010, I had been emailing Ben occasional things I'd see on eBay, etc., and was just a huge fanboy of Hodinkee at that time. Right. Which was really not covering new watches. It was like a cool vintage watch each day. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, he was just about to start journalism school at Columbia, mm-hmm. and he said, why don't you write about this universal Genève pull router, which I thought would be a really cool story and never covered. 
so which just to, while we're talking, just how much was that watch at the time? Uh, like five hundred dollars, maybe five hundred to a thousand dollars. Okay, go ahead. And uh, so you're writing about the watch. Actually, I remember buying one at the time for like two hundred fifty dollars with oh a black dial. That's okay. like four thousand dollars today. I would say five thousand dollars. <laughs> um, and and uh, the he um, so he asked you to write about yeah, it. Yeah, and then. And then it was really fun. I never anticipated doing that. Then suddenly he brought on, like a few weeks later, a bunch of other guys. Uh, Jason Heaton being one of them. Another Wisconsin yeah. alum. Blake Butner. <laughs> another Wisconsin guy. So yeah. There were three Wisconsin guys. And uh, a couple others. And then all of us were unpaid at the time. Um, right. Which was funny. Um, and... Ben made a joke about that at the Hodinkee tenth anniversary. Uh, that that Jason still has outstanding invoices from two thousand ten for his writing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the so we uh, we were all just sort of writing about cool stuff. We found Jason had his dive angle because he was really into diving. He still is. Um, we all had our different angles and stories, and uh, eventually we got paid. I don't know, it was $10 per post and $30 per post and then up from there. Right. And Hodinkee just grew into what it is today, which is pretty amazing. But you, I'm, so when I first came into like interaction with you, you were writing this Friday post. Yeah. What was it? Do you remember what it was, it was called? called? Originally called What's Selling Where mm-hmm. and then changed to Bring a Loop, uh, sort of inspired by Bring a Trailer, the vintage car site. Right. And um, I was just kind of finishing up at, at Oxford. And then they, we had, they had sort of done it. Blake did a couple, it was sort of a haphazard thing. And then Steven had the idea, um, to do it weekly, which I took on. And, uh, it was really, I thought it was a really intense experience to have to do that every week. In addition to working full time for a biofuel venture, but um, wait, 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 hold on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> biofuel venture. Yeah. So where, where where are you at the time? In Florida. Okay. After Oxford, I moved to Florida um, to work for a company called Titan, which was and still is a company with sort of a process for turning sugars into diff- different sorts of biofuel, like ethanol, uh, biodiesel, right? Jet fuel. The main product they were using was tobacco. Um, and now they're sort of using that process um, of of sort of recycling products to it's they're actually they've sort of shifted and are in the fashion industry now uh, yeah, makes for sense. sustainable <laughs> sustainable clothing and recycling polyester, oh, which is very difficult. That does um, make sense now. And uh, so now they're they're in the fashion world, funnily enough. Uh, so you're working full time. Yeah, but you're also I mean, it sounds like you were also kind of this serial researcher. Yes. Just yeah. like constantly reading and learning about stuff. Yep. And then sharing all of that with not just Ben, yep. uh, climber of Hodinkee, but like the entire Hodinkee readers. Yes. Yeah. So you create Bring a Loop. Yep. Well, you and the Hodinkee team. Yep. And the thing I, I wanted to specifically call out about this is this, I think, was one of the best ways, at least for someone like me, who like... I was the watch expert amongst my friends, but if I'm ever around watch experts, I don't know anything. So it's yeah. like, yeah, I, I know that, you know, that reference number or something yeah. like that, but that's yep. it. Yep. But you were writing about all of these watches. Yeah, like the, the Universal Geneva um, and the, the Polar Routers and the, the Tri-Compacts and all these watches. And what was crazy is, do you remember Gilt? Of course. Okay, yeah. so you remember when Gilt would go live at like noon, yes. everything would be gone? Yeah. Yep. So you guys, you're bring a loop would go live and everything would be gone. Yep. And these were like, some were, some were pretty affordable, yep. but some were not. Yes. Yeah. And they just vanished. Yeah. I remember it was, I think it was, uh, it was spring 2015 and I, it, I probably had 10 watches, 10, 15 watches. And I think everyone sold within a day or two. It was something like a total of $1.7 million because one of the watches was, I think, a $750,000 paddock. Oh, my sold. Lord. And I was like, wow, this is powerful <laughs> when that happened. Right. Um, 
And then you'd see a watch that should be like $200 on eBay and it goes for $1,000 and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. And um, it was, I mean, I, I would say it's pretty safe to assume that it was the readers and the traffic that yeah. you guys were generating versus no, it was some other sure. dude. Yeah, it was. And I'm really happy about that because it brought a lot of people into vintage watches and to appreciate them. Yeah. Um, which it's, I'm glad it's back. Um, uh, a young guy named Isaac Wingold, I think he's 20, is writing it now. Oh, and, yeah, I know um, him. Uh, so it's, it's good because I left uh, Hodinkee. To, that was always a part-time thing. Uh, I decided to go into watches full-time in spring 2015. Yeah, so and, how, how did that happen? It was funny because I knew I met John Reardon of Christie's when he was with Sotheby's in I think 2011, short, shortly after I started writing, maybe even fall 2010, and uh, at an auction here in New York and preview. And um, we had re- remained friends over the years and mm-hmm. uh, fans of each other's work. And in 2014, he was approached me. Um, the Christie's had gone through a big transition because Aurel Box and a bunch of his people left. Um, yeah. And Aurel Box, the, the auction, the auctioneer yeah, and now watch Phillips. guy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he, John asked if I wanted to work for Christie's. I said, you know, what's the offer basically? <laughs> and I'd be interested, but the, that, Wait, you that mean writing time, posts from my bedroom for no. 10 bucks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> So he, um, I said, you know, I'd be interested for sure. And then he said, oh, it could only be a consultant job. I just had a child. My wife and I had a baby in January 2014. So it was after that. He said, sorry, there can't be benefits if you want to be based in Florida, et cetera. Um, And I said, we can't have a, we've got a family, got to have benefits here. (laughs) Yeah. um, He comes back around. during that time, basically in early 2015, I, uh, Hodinkee is just getting its group of investors, Kevin Rose, mm-hmm. um, Google Ventures, etc. Christie's comes back and he, he says, I, we really want your help uh, and we can offer benefits, etc. Which that was, I think it's, 249th year of existence and I don't think at that point they had ever had a full-time employee with benefits not in a Christie's office really Um, so that that was pretty interesting and like showed they really wanted my help and meanwhile I never worked in watches full-time yeah and then I was talking with Phillips which was just coming online around the time of its first auction uh watch auction in May 2015 um so it was a really tough decision because I love Todinki. I basically lived and breathed Todinki for years. Right. Um, I know Ben was really happy when you did that, or when you got to go over there. So. Yeah, yeah. So I was really gutted because I, I loved Todinki and wanted to do that. I was actually crying when I really realized that Christie's was the best option for me at that time. I don't really? think I've ever cried so hard in my life i only told ben that this summer um we were playing golf and i said you know when i didn't end up going with you guys it was probably the saddest i've ever been in my life (laughs) (laughs) but but also happy for the opportunity at christie's right um i mean because it it was it wasn't just like come and help out or come and authenticate stuff like you were front and center like the watch guy for christie's yeah so i was part of the new york team but still based in florida traveling a lot certainly in the u.s and worldwide for all the auctions Mm -hmm. um and i really loved the experience but it was it was very taxing a lot of travel a lot of stress the amount of emails each day to respond to everything to do was was a lot what did a day look like Basically, you wake up and you have tons of emails from people. <laughs> okay. Um, so you're people that want to hear from you to sell their watches or they're looking for this or something else. It's not unlike what I do now, which is also I open up my email and get tons of emails from people. But, right. But you have a lot of other things to do and other things that they're telling you you have to do and estate valuations and 
all kinds of things. Um, colleagues from around the world asking for your help to look at watches or figure out or source things together so you've got both the sort of scholarship side and then you've got the real deal making side which is getting the items secured many times these are competitive situations where person's written all Sotheby's and Christie's or Phillips and Christie's or they've offered it to their local watch dealer and he's making this cash offer. Why should I go to auction when I can get cash now, et cetera? So you're like... Everything is right in flux and you've got maybe 10, 20 different consignments you're working on at a, on a given day. Um, Jeez. So <laughs> you're on the phone a lot. Like it's... I was you know, working till midnight each day, usually talking to someone, maybe you're talking to someone on the West coast, which I still do like it because it's only 9 PM there. Right. (laughs) It's a, it's a lot to manage all that. And, um, it was obviously an invaluable experience. I got to meet a lot of collectors around the world, travel the world. Um, and I sort of realized that it was time to do my own thing last year in 2017. Um, And at least there, I didn't feel like there was much of room for growth because I had experienced so much in two years. And it was You were only there two years, really? Two and a half years, yeah. And it was was like, what are the next two years going to look like? It's going to be exactly the same, basically. Yeah. So I decided to submit my resignation and start my own business which is uh it doesn't really happen that much in the auction world because you're used to the salary and the security of the job etc yeah um there haven't been many cases of people leaving to become a dealer but i was i'm obviously very happy i did but it's you're jumping into the unknown a little bit um about what's going to happen but you know hopefully which was in true in my case you have the reputation and connections and clients etc to both find watches which is almost the more difficult aspect um because everyone's hunting for inventory uh and then if you have good stuff you can sell it basically it sells itself in a way right and because i think you know for in terms of vintage watch buying you know like i was saying there i feel like there's there's not a ton of people out there but even the the dudes that are out there it's it's super competitive. It is. And you have good relationships with all the other dealers, but you are competing against them in many cases for a watch. Maybe he emails three other dealers plus two auction houses and yourself. Right. Maybe you've got a connection to the person, but they're offering it to a few people. It's uh, it's always it's a very competitive environment for both for sourcing particularly, but also selling. If two dealers have the same thing, they may undercut each other or say, oh, that's not a very good one. You should buy mine, et cetera. Oh, um, geez. It is, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of different variables in the field. So so you go, you go solo, you start your own business. What does it look like? Because obviously there's a lot of people that I've talked to that start their own biz, but for you, you can't just like make it. Like you can't yeah. like, oh, so I designed this watch and yeah. then we had it made. Yes. And yeah. It's you're literally looking for pieces where there's, I don't know, like ten or yeah. Yeah. a few. Like what does it look like to acquire inventory? I mean, do you and I'm not asking you to yeah, reveal sources, yeah. but just like what does it look like? That was one thing. I was on a panel at the Hodinki tenth anniversary with uh two other vintage dealers mm-hmm. uh last week. And um Who was it? It was it was Matt, Matt Bain. Bain and Alex Chiani. Yeah, and, that's right. Um the comments on Hodinkee on that page were like, why didn't anyone ask where they get their watches? Like there were three <laughs> comments like that. But I want to hear about where they find them. Um, I sort of do it like when I wrote Bring a Loop, which was uh, small auction houses around the US or around the world. Um, there's probably not a week that goes by where I'm not bidding on something somewhere. Sometimes it's like every day there's some small auction house in upstate New York or in the state of Washington or wherever. Right. Um, I buy, I I bought a number of great watches in Sweden at their auction houses there. Um, Wait, so just because I want to get a little bit more granular. Yeah. What does it look like to, to try to even 
first off, who tells you about that place in Sweden? And then how do you even go and bid at yeah. an auction house in Sweden? Yeah. So um, that they're both great. They have two sort of main auction houses there for watches now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kaplan's and Bukowski's. I wrote about both in my Hodinkee writing days. Um, Bukowski's actually sort of popped up more recently with watches. Um, but Kaplan's has been around for a while and, right. uh, they both are very good with their photography. Like a lot of major auction houses and, uh, us auction houses could learn a thing or two because you can pretty well make a determination based on the photographs they provide. Right. Um, and, and I'm just, and I won't call anyone out, but you're yeah. saying this because there have been a few auction houses that. Um, and so not everyone that's hearing this is aware yeah. that have, have retouched some like of their Photoshop images shop and things like that of, of a vintage watch, yeah. which if you're buying vintage you, and you can't base your decision on their photos, you have to see and hold the watches. Right. And I'll call out Christie's my former employer because the photographs are really like people joke. They're kind of like a comic book or cartoon <laughs> oh, <no>. book. <laughs> they're just, they're not great. That's um, not good. Okay. So, um, and I've told them that they're working on it, but um, well, that's good. Yeah. At least they're aware. Yeah. Feedback so is key. It is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Bukowski's they're, they're, they're doing, you know, their, their, their photos were really, really good. Yeah. But... And you can sort of make a determination based on that, uh, based on seeing the watch. And I've had, um, and so you just call them and you're like, Hey man, I'm, I'm Eric Wynn. Let's <laughs> yeah. do this. Yeah. And, uh, or I've even had a friend go and look at a watch there. Um, which uh, was a very valuable watch to make sure it sort of read the Geiger correctly. There's a lot of forensics now with watch buying vintage watches. Wait, wait, can can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, (laughs) these things weren't used like three or four years ago, but everyone carries a UV light with them sort of 24-7 on their keychain, etc. Okay. Um, Why is to that? To look at the luminous material on the dial and in the hands of most of these sport watches, whether it's all Rolex sport models, uh, basically, or Omega Speedmasters, etc. They all have a compound in the hands or on the dial to make it glow at night. The tritium? Tritium yeah. was used sort of 1962, 1963 and newer. Before that was radium. For most watch companies. And radium is radioactive. Radio, they're both radioactive, but tritium's a very low radioactivity, like the equivalent of a banana, which has, is also has some radioactivity as it rots. Like sitting Wait, really? To, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not dangerous. It's so low. But radium is very radioactive in many cases, and okay. it has a 5,000-year half-life. So... Basically, for the radioactivity to decline in half, it takes 5,000 years for it to decline. Um, So uh, these watches, particularly, um, you know, a lot of Rolex watches from the 1950s, Rolex made Panerai watches in the 1940s for the Italian military, etc. These uh, Omega Speedmasters, Seamasters, they're very radioactive, and people want to know that it's authentic loom so they have geiger counters to check the radioactivity which is measured in microsieverts per hour the amount of radiation coming off um Whoa. so i've got one in my bag <laughs> i have one with me at all times Do, as well. when whenever you're traveling like does is anyone ever like yo what the hell is this thing on you man <laughs> if i yeah i've had it TSA opened my bag. Yeah, they're just like Geiger counter. <laughs> yeah. You're like, look, I sell watches, <laughs> yes, and they're like yeah. looking at their Apple Watch. Yes, hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's a very much a forensic approach now. People looking with UV lights because the the loom or the luminous material, which people call loom, should glow a certain color a certain right. way. When you turn it off, it should die quickly, depending on the year. Um, and there could be wide variations in. Like, just following Rolex, a 1950s watch looks so different from a 60s watch, which looks so different than a 70s watch under a UV light and so, reacts differently. So I'm, we're, like, sidebarring the sidebar here. <laughs> yeah. Who told you all of that stuff? Where did you learn that? You learn it from other people and just through trial and error as well. It's um, Okay. You really, 
you have to study watches and like you didn't just buy like the book there's no book about this and a lot of people don't know this it's not really conveyed i'm i try to teach people these things but it is a bummer when you a collector is like i have these 15 watches in my collection this happens pretty frequently and I'm like, let's take a look. And then, like, all 15 have serious issues. They're reloomed dials or the hands are replaced. But if you're just looking at it based on color, mm-hmm. the, the hands may match perfectly in color with the dial, but it's actually just paint and not a luminous material. Or the hands then glow for, like, 10 minutes after you do that instead of 10 seconds. Uh, so they're replaced, things like that. Oh, that's got to be like, awkward oh. as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like man this is all legit they I think it's sorry. like a million dollars yeah. and you're like sorry bro yeah so Geiger says no yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> so, so it's tough and and why and like some of this i know but yeah. i want to get you to like also communicate to the yeah. listeners why are these people's watches you know they're just repainted are they like what's what's the point of that it's um it's just like restoring something to make it look original but it's not and right. um, that's why I think many people don't communicate about these things because they'd rather have the buying public not know to look with a UV light, for instance. Um, they would just rather have them base it just on look. Because the value is, match. is much more original, by, right? Yeah, it affects it by a significant percentage if these things are, are done. It happened again. I was traveling abroad and posting dope fit pics on my phone when I saw it. Battery life 2%. What do I do? Who do I call? But wait. I realized I was traveling with my away carry-on. The super strong German polycarbonate suitcase with the four gliding wheels and the sleek and simple design also had the built-in USB battery charger. Yes, I was saved. I plugged in and felt the rush of power. Somehow I was able to gram harder than I ever grammed. Tweet better than I ever tweeted. I mean, the likes nearly made my head explode. All thanks to my Away carry-on with the built-in USB battery charger. Right now, Away is offering Blamo listeners a special deal. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blamo and use promo code Blamo at checkout to save $20 off your first luggage purchase. Never have a dead phone again or bad luggage. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash blamo and use promo code blamo at checkout to save $20 off your first luggage purchase. Well, here, I'm just going to like throw out an example here and and tell me what this value difference is. So you have a, you know, Rolex big crown, right? So that's the Rolex Submariner with no crown guard and the crown's really big. Yep. And the everything on it is original. Uh, no box or papers. Yep. But the dial has been like uh totally Re-lined. refinished. So if it's say that it like it's a standard, um, we'll just say it's like a two line model from 1959 for the watch geeks that'll be listening. Okay. If it's really perfect condition, perfect dial, perfect, perfect everything, maybe it's three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand. If it's unpolished, dollars. Yeah. Okay. And, and like really. Really mint. It could be maybe someone pays more, but that's where I'd put place value three fifty to four hundred. Okay. Um, if it's reloomed, it's probably fifty. The the dial in hands. So the the value fell three hundred thousand yeah. dollars because the dial is reloomed. Yep. So that's that's fifty to eighty. So like, it's that yeah. important for those yeah. reasons. Yep. So it's of course then you have people that want to make things look original. Then so there's a right. trade in radium people that have old bottles of original radium, people buying other watches. Get out of town. Are you serious? No, I'm I'm serious. People will pay a lot for a bottle of original radium from the 50s. Uh, People are going around to old watchmakers trying to buy all their stuff or estates of of a watchmaker, and then maybe they find the radium bottles, and then everyone rejoices that... (laughs) And, and wants that, and so because if I, they're using it to then make the watch look to make the fifty to eighty thousand dollar reloomed one three hundred fifty. And, and does it work if you got the old paint? In some cases, if people aren't aware, then oh my god! So it the restoration aspect is a really 
important one because so much is being done to make things appear not as they are. Right. Um, which is the same in the art world or car world, et cetera. There's a lot of, when you have these sort of big values, obviously there are people motivated to make money. Yeah. Um, and, and misrepresent things. Um, so you then have people making watches very radioactive, but maybe the loom doesn't glow quite right, but there's no books or websites about this. So right. people are then buying these things without guidance or without a trusted advisor, et cetera. And then maybe later they realize what happened. It's a big problem. So do you think that you or someone, and I'm not trying to get you to do work, but like, yeah. do you think that someone should like publish this or communicate all this? I I'm interested in communicating it more for sure. And I try to, I've written articles about it and I'm interested in teaching courses on vintage watches in this aspect. Yeah. Um, because what happens the I care about the watches and the hobby and everything else. Like I have a very long-term thinking. I plan to be doing this a while and actually most of our net worth is in my watch collection, et cetera. <laughs> so I don't want these things to go down. Right. Like I care about them. I love them. Um, so the problem is when all this stuff happens, it happens, it's happened in other fields. If there is too much monkeying around and not enough clarity, then people just leave the hobby and they sell all their watches. Oh. When someone's burned by a watch dealer, they're not often the people buying these watches, whether you're a young person or you're a captain of industry, mm -hmm. you don't want to feel stupid and I've seen it happen many times where then people then feel stupid and they say, I don't need this. I don't have time for this. I can't have this guy rip me off and I'm done with watches. Basically, I'll just buy a new paddock at, uh, you know, turn and move on with my life, et cetera. Wow. So, so it is short term thinking, um, for many people and many dealers to sell watches that are restored and not tra being transparent about it. Yeah. Jeez. So, I mean, uh, just to jump back on the forensics a bit, what other stuff are people are people using outside of, you know, Geiger's and UV? The other aspect that's sort of increased in importance, obviously, for a vintage watch, most of the value is in the dial, typically. Mm -hmm. So that involves the loom, the lacquer, uh, for, for a lot of pre-1966 Rolex watches, the sport watches generally had a lacquer coating that we call a gilt or glossy dial mm -hmm. so that those dials are very fragile and sensitive a lot of times they have cracks the they're spider crazy. dials yeah. yeah and um that affects the value as well a big amount for a perfect dial which everyone wants versus a cracked dial so there are things that people do to treat dials or heat the lacquer to try to make it more glossy or a Two different sort the of lacquer. Yeah. So Jeez. it sort of remelts on the dial. And then the the Rolex text underneath the lacquer can look a little more it's not as crisp around the edge. Right. It it it, it sort of the heat causes it to be more rough along the edge, etc. So there's a lot of treatment being done or chemicals being put on dials. Um then, then you've got the case, which is another important aspect of the watch, and people really like full cases with, um, you know, for, for a Rolex watch with the original chamfered edges, or people call them chamfers or yeah. pebbles. Um, so, of course, you've got a lot of people restoring or laser welding on metal to make the case thicker. With gold watches, you can have people laser welding on gold, applying fake hallmarks to the case if the hallmark was lost in the past um all these things affect value so much hundreds of thousands of dollars on a on an important paddock if it has a hallmark or not right um so it's uh it's a very dangerous field uh, yeah in that sense i mean are there any other in, in terms of like other dealers and stuff that you work with are there other people that you'll like you'll send someone to like some guys like hey i want to get this and you're like no just go to this dude yeah i mean i try to help people as much as i can or source the watch myself from someone else if i trust it right um, but i work with a number of dealers which is um 
I hesitate to even say names because then no, no, I'm not be, asking. If I that. leave like names out, then people are offended, yeah. et cetera. But um, yeah, I think it all depends what someone's looking for. I mean, if someone's looking for like a a, a basic Submariner, five thousand or six thousand dollar nineteen nineties Submariner, I often send them to Bob's Watches in California because you're getting an authentic watch. Most vintage dealers I work with are obviously focused more on sort of higher-end pieces, $10,000, $15,000 and up. Right. Um, so that's a great place to buy, like, an, a quasi-new piece. Right. But, um, but if you're looking for, like, a Red Submariner, I have those usually in stock. Um, What's a red Submariner? I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. That's like a that's the first Rolex Submariner model with date, which um, was sort of introduced by Rolex uh, as the Submariner was getting very popular. But at that time, a lot of people were buying them that were desk divers, so to speak. They're just wearing it to the office and back. They're not actually diving with it, right? Uh, And they wanted a date on their wrist, so. The Red Submariner was really introduced for that crowd, not, not so much the professional diving crowd, uh, although you could obviously dive with it. Because you never need a date if yeah, you're diving. No, exactly. You know, it doesn't matter what a, date is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, um, the Submariner written on the dial above six o'clock is in red on those models, um, which was just a funny thing Rolex did for a number of years, and then they switched it to white. But people like that model because... The red kind of pops when you look at it. Right. Um, that's just sort of a basic watch that a, a lot of people like. And it's risen in value a lot the last eight years. Right. And that's, you know, one thing I've heard before is like there, there will be people that will find a watch like that in their house. Yeah. And they, they bring it to Rolex. Yes. And Rolex will replace everything that needs to be replaced. Yep. It's, uh, Why do you think that is? Watchmaking school generally and the whole approach of watchmaking has always been about progress and evolution. And even when I meet and talk with Swiss watchmakers today, um, they still, I was, I was actually at this company, uh, this movement company. I did a tour earlier this year. They make watches for a number of companies and they, um, I was talking about vintage watches and they're like, but vintage watches are such crap. Like, why would you like this? They're not very accurate, et cetera. I'm like, he's like, you don't want a vintage watch. You want a new watch. And um, I was like, I don't want a new watch really. But uh, um, so they, they just think that everything is, is about progress and evolution. So that's why Rolex has, replace the dials of so many of these watches with newer dials yeah um and they still do to this day sadly which can ruin the value of a watch by 90 percent um or more um they'll change hands because then you can see the time at night because they still glow etc um and and they polish the watches to make them look like new and they won't tell you like if you bring it in they're not gonna be like hey man this is all original. You want to go sell this? They to don't. Eric Quinn. They don't understand their history. In many cases, I, it's. I, I remember a story of a lady who had a a gold Daytona that mm-hmm. was worn by her father only ten times in his life. He got it for his wedding uh, in something like 1972, and then died in 1982. And oh. She had it, and but he would only wear it on his anniversary. And it was like brand new condition, box and papers, um, which is like the original guarantee from Rolex, the original box it came in. Yeah. She was French. She drove over to Switzerland, I guess, to drop the watch to be serviced. And she said, don't replace anything. Don't change anything. She gets the watch back huh. and they relumed the, the plots on the dial, these little circular plots next to the hour markers. And yeah. they relumed the hands with Luminova, which is the latest uh non-radioactive stuff luminous right? material yeah yeah so it destroys the value by that probably hurt it by 60 percent, i would say at least Jeez. and so she threw a fit but they are just like what are you talking about we didn't replace anything we're just making the watch better to, so you could see it at night and like the next owner will want this etc but right. it's, it's they just don't really understand 
that aspect. The other thing that's difficult with Rolex too is they won't give you the old parts back. Whereas if you send something to Omega in Switzerland, they'll often replace things like maybe they put on a new bezel, et cetera, at the request of the client, but they will give you the bag of parts. Um, so I can't like, in many cases I've bought watches or we offered them at Christie's people, you replace back the original parts on the watch and just right. get rid of the new stuff. Um, it's, it's just, it's crazy. Are there brands out there that do, that, that maybe do value more of their history? Omega for sure, because they at least, I think they're trying to educate people about those things. And if they do want replaced hands, et cetera, at least you still have the bag of the old parts. Right. And they've been, they've done that for decades. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. But, uh, but Rolex doesn't, I think because they're concerned about the parts being used in counterfeit watches, et cetera, that would be their sort of public explanation for why they don't return the old parts. Right. Um, and I, in general, I would, I would say that the Swiss watch industry of the major brands for restoration gets like a D minus grade, if Jeez. Not, not worse. But there are some brands, Longines is very good actually in terms of both their history they're the only company that gives extracts for free which is if you have a longine watch and you send them a photo of the movement and case back and dial they'll send you a written card saying where it was when it was made and where it was originally delivered um some companies charge like 250 dollars plus for that piece of paper and they'll send it to you for free um and then they've been i haven't worked with them on servicing or restoring a watch but my understanding from the community is they're very careful they make sure to use all original parts or keep the original parts or if it has something replaced they might have the original part in stock and actually sell it to you to and put it on the watch etc that's crazy yeah so that's that's neat so this brings me to one of the last things i wanted to discuss with you about so the first thing is if i'm a normal dude and I'm not crazy wealthy. Yep. Can I still get into vintage watches? Yes, and I would encourage you to for sure. I think there are really great watches under a thousand dollars. There are obviously great watches over a million dollars, but there are so many great pieces to enjoy in the like what's a you know so some some yeah. clown comes up to you and yeah. he says, I got less than a thousand dollars, but yep. I want I want to get into something. Yeah, yeah. I'd say like uh you can get a really cool vintage Longines from the 50s, 40s, like a Conquest, things like that, mm-hmm. um, which are, are great pieces. You can get vintage Omega watch, dress watches, Seamasters and things, still under a 1,000. Um, there are really cool dive watches like um, from the 70s. Squale has made some really cool stuff, and then they had a bunch of different little brands. I have a Ducato I just sold on my site there's certina watches that are really nice under two thousand dollars so you um, actually sell some of that stuff on your site that's i do that? yeah i try to put a few things up um that are less expensive and you know that are really nice things so people can see and kind of come into it and buy f- from a trusted source etc so it's not i mean vintage watches are not just like oh that's just the rich dude thing yeah i really don't believe so and i really want to discourage that yeah because i got started with less expensive stuff myself yeah and that's how you sort of move up the collecting arc some people will come in and just say okay i want to spend two hundred fifty thousand on a paul newman etc or more um but the really passionate sort of people that really begin to learn they start with the small stuff um, right and that's actually appreciation wise Obviously, mathematically, that stuff can appreciate much more rapidly, much more quickly. So yeah, like buy... two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, UGs. yeah. So the yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which could be now. I I think I I had one I bought for nine hundred. That's like a ten thousand dollar watch now. Um, Jeez. And uh, that was just in like a four year time frame. So, yeah. but I do think like you should buy it because you like it, not so much the investment aspect. Um, it's good to buy good things and really nice things. And I think they will appreciate, but there's also too many people coming into the market that are 
saying, oh, I'm going to get wealthy buying this stuff. And that's never good for a market either. Yeah, like, you know, is there a bubble? Like, I don't think so for a few reasons, but I do think certainly over the last couple of months, we've seen some things come down. Um, some brands that were overvalued are models where there's a lot more supply than demand. So mm-hmm. it's just natural. But um, what I don't like is everyone saying, oh, vintage, this is the next big thing. So there is vintage Hoyer, which I love vintage Hoyer watches. Yeah, vintage so, Hoyers are stupid expensive yeah, now. They, they appreciated so fast in sort of a two-year time frame. Yeah. And then they've come back down, some of these models, pretty That's significantly good. 80% for some of these watches. Oh, There's wow. been a decline like that, which people that bought them at the high are definitely not too thrilled. But um, <laughs> um, but a part of that was the investment craze aspect of it. And right. um, that's not good. People should be buying them because they like them. So I don't like the vintage this is the next big thing because then you get a negative taste in your mouth about the brand and the watches too, even mm-hmm. though they're really cool. Um, like Panerai was so hot for a while and then they declined so precipitously that people are like, oh, Panerai's not cool now because they declined so much. It'd be better if it had never... And I've seen that reaction to Hoyer among some people. They're like, yeah, but it declined so much, it can't be that cool. But I love the watches. I just wish they hadn't gone so high so fast. What do you think makes something go like that high? I mean... It can be as simple as two people wanting something that can drive a price crazy at auction. And auctions serve a very important purpose in that they're a public sale of a, an item and help the market sort of see what's going on. Um, but it can also be manipulated. It can also be that a result really doesn't indicate what something's actually worth. Um, I talk about the depth of a market. Mm -hmm. Because if two people want some specific watch and they both buy it, then the third one could fall by 80% because there's not a buyer there to buy it. The third person, there's not a third person who wants something or et cetera, you know, fourth person. So um, depth of market's really important. Interesting. Do you, this is like, I don't mean to go off on, on a tangent here, but I think there's, like sometimes you'll watch an auction, so yep. the most recent Phillips auction, and there'll be like heavy hitters in, in in terms of the lot number. Yes, so it'll be like lot number five and six, and they're yep. big deal watches. Yeah, and then lot number seven is like not really anything special at all. Yeah, and it goes for way above estimate. Do you think that's because like the buyers that w- missed out on the other lots are just like I'm getting something? Yeah, it can be for sure. Yeah, that. It's it's one of those things where sometimes people attribute too much to an auctioneer or an auction or something else, but but it can be the opposite. Like in a really like uh I guess a good case of that is our thematic auctions where um, you know, it might be on a specific model. At Christie's we did a Speedmaster auction. Mm-hmm. Um it could be there's a Daytona auction at Phillips, Day Date auction. Right. Um I remember I had a client on uh, for the Speedmaster auction who really wanted to get a Speedmaster and sort of wanted to get one from the auction and from me, et cetera. So I think he he bid up like three watches pretty high, but he he kept not being high enough. And then oh, he's geez. like, I need one bad. Like, I'm going <laughs> to get this fourth one. Like, he had four on his list. And it ended up that he got the fourth uh at a decent price but he he drove the prices up i would i felt like on the other three because he he just kept he wasn't going to be deterred he was going to get a a speedmaster from that auction and i think that does happen with some of the other auctions like i want something from this auction like i want one of these watches i don't have one and i'm gonna go even if it doesn't even make sense right um so that it does happen it's not that common Right. I'd say though, the the thing that's hard, like I I feel like I have a benefit as a dealer because I worked for an auction house and got to see that side of it. Obviously, most dealers are only on the dealer side and haven't seen behind the scenes. But you can 
get a sense when things don't make sense um, for that sort of anomalous auction result. I can have a sense for that just from feel and the market, but a lot of people and collectors don't. So then they suddenly think that this watch is worth so much more, but the result really doesn't make sense. Yeah, like Um, I don't think a Zenith Daytona is worth $20,000. Yeah, in some cases they're going far higher. Yeah. So um, it just, there's a lot of hype with different models and people thinking this is the next big thing and then prices rise, but there's a lot out there and then prices could come back because there aren't that many strong buyers at those levels. Right. So we'll see. Um, um, and so one of the things I've seen a lot of dealers do, which I haven't seen you do, is dealers are selling brand new watches. And there's yeah. like this, this sort of air quote, like gray market yep. um, that's happening. Like, and right, right before we started recording, you know, I, we were talking about Rolex and some of the watches that they pushed out. Yep. And like, you can't find any of these watches on retail. No. And so you have to buy them above retail. It's, it's like Supreme yes. hype based stuff, but yep. these are $10,000 MSRP watches. Yes. Yeah. It's very unusual to see like a the new pepsi gmt which retails for 9250 selling for 16000 and up yeah um, that's and really rolex makes crazy. millions of watches right yeah. it's not like paddock philippe no they yeah they probably i mean the best estimate is sort of 800 to 900,000 watches per year and uh that's a lot of watches but um the there's a lot of discussion about why this is happening yeah I mean, and we we won't go too deep yeah. down this rabbit yeah. hole, but do you think that, and and I, you know, this might be cardinal sin as I'm going to talk to other people in the watch industry later, but like, do you think that some of these watch companies are in, intentionally doing this because, um, it it feels that a lot of the people that are into watches because of how big vintage is, mm-hmm. people are just like, oh man, I'd rather go vintage. There's so much yeah. history. Like, yeah, put my money there. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad to see it with like the Pepsi GMT because everyone uh, that was a, there's a number of years where it wasn't in production. Mm-hmm. They bring it back this year and then the vintage models have appreciated exactly. an incredible amount this year. Yeah. Um, because people were like, Oh, it makes sense to me to buy a vintage 1970s GMT for the same price as the modern. I would take the vintage all day. Um, but, um, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just that the market's smart and people realize that if you could buy something, even if you gain $50 walking out of the store and right. when you sell it because of demand, it just creates an add-on effect and prices keep rising. Um, uh, so the it just makes them more desirable. When the secondary market's above, no matter how much, it can create a spiral effect where the prices keep going even higher yeah which is interesting i mean hermes has effectively done that for many years with their uh handbags the kelly and the birkin because they've a good point they've they that creates such a halo of positivity around their brand i'm sure they could make more i know it does take a good amount of time to make one but the way they treat it and that you have to be a special client to get one etc creates a whole positive halo and -hmm. i don't know that rolex has done that intentionally. The Daytona has been very desirable for a long time, but never like a GMT or a sub where you couldn't walk in a store and buy one. I mean, the idea that you can't walk in and buy a no date Submariner, a date Submariner into a retailer is insane to me because three, two, three years ago, you could walk into any retailer and buy one basically. Yeah. Um, The, I had a, friend here in new york who wanted to get a new no date sub Mm -hmm. he called 38 retailers in the area here tri-state area none had one and then finally his 39th call was to a store in pennsylvania and they said it was on a saturday they said we have one we're closing at 4 p.m uh someone didn't pay for it or something if you come today you can buy it so he drove like three or four hours to get this thing um but i like the fact that you'd have to make 39 calls to get a no-date Submariner is insane. Yeah, and because it, it's, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's still an expensive piece. Yeah, it's a $9,000 watch. It's a little less than nine. God. And, but, like, everyone wanted, 
everyone, particularly outside of the watch world, wanted the dates of Mariner. So the fact that it was so difficult to get a no date is also unbelievable because it's a more niche watch. Weird. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, before before we wrap, the, the last thing, is there, what would you say to the people who they want to get into vintage and they're still just trying to figure out like, where, where do I learn? Like what, what, what books do I read or what do I check out? Um, definitely Hodinkee. Yeah. Look at past articles. There's a, there's something I wrote about buying watches on eBay. That's sort of a very basic primer, uh, for them a few years ago. Um, hopefully they'll check out windvintage.com. I've got, if you look under sort of press, some of the articles I've written in the past and I'll be writing more. Um, but some of the key things I've written and, um, try to go handle as many watches as you can see what you like in the metal and on your wrist, go to auction previews, um, come, you know, visit with me, send me an email. If you want to see watches, we can look over coffee. Um, it's really helpful to see what you like because just looking on the computer screen is very different than holding it in person. Yeah, I agree. Especially the weight. That's something yeah. I never understood yeah. until I started feeling things. And like, you'll, I'll put on a vintage watch and you're like, oh, it doesn't weigh anything. Yes. Yeah. Versus, you know, the watch I'm wearing now is a brick. It's, a, it's heavy. Yeah. yeah. So, well, Mr. Eric Wynn, thank you so, so much. This thank was you, a huge pleasure. It's great. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tanlines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.